Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvaroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Dr. Stephen Shepard joins the show to talk about visionary leadership, curiosity, and how we can become the inspirational visionary leaders that we've always wanted to be. Steve drops a few exercises on us and definitely write those down, try them out, and let us know how they went for you. For all things leadership development, leadership coaching, leadership services, assessments on psychological safety, leadership, and more, head over to EliteHighPerformance.com and you can find it all there. Or you can reach out to me, Rob, at Elite High Performance and we can jump on a call to talk about what is best and right for you today. Everybody, I really appreciate you listening so much and I would really appreciate you if you would share the podcast with other leaders in your life, or if you have any leaders that you'd love us to interview on the show, shoot them my way. You can either send me an email, rob at elitehighperformance.com, or you can send me a message on LinkedIn. I so much appreciate you spending your time with us. Thank you so much. And here's the interview with Dr. Steve Shepard. We are back. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, we have the ying to my yang, Susan Hobson. Susan, how are you? I am pretty. I just dropped my daughter at school, and my knees were aching. That's how cold it is in Toronto. I can hardly believe it. How about you, buddy? I'm I'm good. I'm in the new office now. I'm we're right. mostly moved right in, so things are things are much better now. Well, good. I'm glad you got transition and you're in your new space. How does that feel? It's great. It's great to have some, uh, you know, a real office <laughs> with a real door. Right. And uh, Winston's still still lying behind me, so it really hasn't changed too much. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Winston rolls where you roll. That's right, and. I want to start off, I mean, obviously, we always start off with a quote. And this week, this one's really apropos for the conversations that I've been having this week with people who are working for 1.0 leaders or in 1.0 led companies. And the quote comes from James Blanchard. And he says, once you awaken you will have no interest in judging those who sleep. Mm -hmm. Wow. Tell us why you chose that quote, sir. It's what I, I mean, I went through this. Mm -hmm. And now what I realize is we're all on our own path. And some folks will never start walking. And it's not that it's bad. It's just what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like when you use the word awakening or awaken, I think that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a raising consciousness, which comes with this understanding and compassion and empathy, everything we preach about here on our show, right? Leadership 2.0, heart-centric, people-centric leadership. I think, yeah, if anything, when you get to that, that space and place of awakening in yourself and awakening to why you're here, right? Which maybe is the path that you're on. I think, yeah, you have a much bigger, broader perspective in terms of, yeah, being able to understand everybody is kind of their own space and that's okay, right? That's okay. And it's okay. And we have a, a special guest, um, someone who's an author, a photographer, records sound, does a whole bunch of different things. Dr. Steve Shepard is with us today. Steve, how are you? 
I am great this morning. Thank you for asking. I, I loved your conversation about being cold a few minutes ago. I, I live in upstate Vermont and uh, went out for a walk yesterday. It was minus 11. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh a brisk walk. I went to high school in New Hampshire. So I remember those walks to school when my nose hairs would freeze before I got to the schoolhouse. So I am feeling it for you. <laughs> it's funny you say that. that. That's our primary indicator of, uh, oh, it's too cold to be out that's here. Right. Our, nose, our nose hairs just froze. I mean, that's, that's a little weird, but it's very indicative. <laughs> I that in New England. That's New England uh, cue. So tell our audience a little bit about yourself, sir, and where you're coming from and what journey you're on or path you're on, especially in the world right now, as it pertains to leadership. That is a, uh, that is a really good question. <clears throat> I think I am the epitome of professional schizophrenia. I, uh, I'm sort of driven by curiosity. That, that's what matters to me more than anything else. I have this belief that it's sort of our sixth sense. And I also have this belief that we don't use it anywhere near often enough. Um, so from a background point of view, kind of weird, really. I, I grew up in, in my younger years in West Texas. Uh, my dad's oil business, he's retired now. Um, when I was about 13, we moved overseas, got transferred to Spain. So I grew up in Europe and kind of fell in love with language and culture and travel and all those kinds of things. Graduated from high school over there, came back to the States, went to university in California at Berkeley, um, went back to Spain for a little bit of graduate work, came back here and did the obvious thing you do. I had two equally useless undergraduate degrees. I had a, I had a degree in a weird field called romance philology, which is the study <laughs> of the origins of romance languages. Yeah, no one's ever heard of it before. Wow. Um, and I had a degree in marine biology. So... Other than teaching fish how to speak Spanish, I didn't know what to do with myself. So <laughs> I kind of became a, I became a commercial diver. I actually taught people how to dive and I did a lot of underwater cinematography and commercial diving, that kind of thing. Did that for about five years and then uh, left that business and went into what ultimately became my career, which was telecommunications. Went to work for the phone company in California. Spent about 11 years with them doing a variety of things, then accepted a job in Vermont with a consulting firm in 1991. So moved up here in 91, went independent in 2000, and I've been doing this ever since. So this is really looking at technology from a leadership perspective, meaning I honestly don't care how it works. I have to know it because of what I do, but frankly, the technology itself bores me to tears. What I'm really interested in is if I take this technology, whatever it is, and put it in a place where it's never been before, a nation in the developing world, for example, how do I create hope? How do I enable business growth? How do I change economics? How do I affect healthcare and education? How do I create more transparent government? And so my focus has been more on the why than on the what. And as a consequence, I find myself doing an awful lot of work with leadership teams that are struggling with that question. You know, they're trying to understand, we know what we do. What we have a hard time understanding really or getting our arms around is why we do it from an aspirational point of view, because that's what creates differentiation. I can buy IT from anybody. I can buy it at Walmart, right? What I can't do though is, is buy a powerful motivator for change. And, and that's that's sort of probably the best answer I can give you for, for that question. <laughs> and I want to dig there. Like, obviously, for some businesses, the why is a little bit, I guess, not obvious. Like, what are people typically missing? Is it just they don't think about it or what do they miss? I think what happens is they they become a little bit blinded and, and what blinds them, you know, there's, a, there's an expression that comes out of the world of uh, ophthalmology, really. It, the word is scotoma, and it means a blind spot. And it refers to a, you know, a lesion or an injury in the retina of the eye, which creates a spot where you can't see. So it looks like a, you know, a blank spot in your vision. I think a lot of people develop those professionally. Um, and I believe it stems from 
what I believe to be the single most dangerous practice that any executive or company can fall prey to, and that is to become entranced by the status quo. You know, we often hear the, the famous expression that's been around forever, which is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the fact is, more often than not, it is broke. But you've been looking at it for so long, you don't realize it. And so we become trapped by the allure of the status quo because the status quo is easy. I'm just kind of marching along, doing my thing. Everything's fine. And that translates into phrases like the burning platform and the boiling frog and all those other, those other, wow, it's getting warm around here. What's going on? How come I'm, you know, how come things aren't going the way I want them to? And by the time they realize it's too late. So as a consequence, what I try to do in my work is gently slap people around the head and say, you need to wake up and look around a little bit. You need to broaden your point of view. You need to ask yourself, what if? And that to me is among the most important questions anyone can ask, because first of all, it requires a certain amount of courage because the answer may be something you don't want to hear, meaning you mean I might have to do something different than what I'm doing today. But we often say in this business, and this applies to sales audiences or really anyone else, that you know, if you want something different, you have to do something different because hope is not a strategy. <laughs> and, you know, it might work out for you, but the danger is that you get into that Alice in Wonderland trap that says, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Well, that's no way to run a business. I'm sorry. Certain amount of serendipity, always a good thing. Running a business, using it as a primary motivating strategy, not so much. <laughs> so we want to be a little bit more deliberate, uh, which personally I believe to be the most important word you can use and think about in business. Be deliberate about everything you do and, and then be surprised by what happens. I mean, there, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a role for both serendipity and sort of deliberate action, but it's a good idea to err on the side of deliberate. This is amazing because it's something we talk a lot about in our practice, right, Rob? You know, just getting at those those blind spots, activating that curious frame, right? So that you actually want to see what's going on back there that you're not privy to. But I think, uh, yeah, it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? When it comes to the human brain, the human brain prefers to run on autopilot. Like you said, it's easier and that's self-preservation at its finest. Our brain thinks that that's a good thing when we're preserving all those resources in case we have to fight off a lion or tiger or bear, right? From evolutionary standpoint. But I think this is, again, one of the hardest things that we, you know, see in our in our coaching practice as well as like disrupt, getting people to want to disrupt that autopilot, trying to get them to make a case to even want to look for those blind spots, right? And I feel like this has been one of the biggest silver linings of all this disruption in the world over the last two years is that we certainly are seeing that a lot more people are coming to that table with that curious frame already activated, right? And, and really starting to ask themselves why, right? Like, why, why am I doing this again? Is this, is, this really, is this really working for me? What are you seeing in all of this disruption since this is something you spend your day job talking about? I think people are becoming more human. I think that people are allowing their guard down a little bit. I, you know, at, when we were in the depths of the zombie apocalypse, as I like to call it, when, you know, there was no end in sight and things were pretty dark, um, I was enchanted by, for example, one day our doorbell rang and, you know, like everyone, I'm working at home and I answered the door and it's one of my neighbors who's a wine guy. He collects wine. And he was standing there with a bottle of wine and he said, hi, I'm the wine fairy. I'm here to deliver your bottle of wine. And he was <laughs> liquidating his entire cellar, giving everybody in the neighborhood a bottle of wine just because he wanted to say, hey, you know, we're in this together. I'm thinking about you. Another neighbor down the road who I don't know, a neighborhood across the street, began baking bread and giving it away to anyone that wanted it. Uh, I guess my, my point is that people began to realize that work is important, but there are things more important than that. And, and I think this ties into the whole leadership message. Whenever I talk to groups, I do a lot of university work, you know, executive education kind of stuff. And 
I will often find myself in a situation where I'll look out at the audience and I'll ask them a very simple question. What do leaders do? And of course, they all strive to come up with these lofty, powerful, polysyllabic responses about whatever, right? And I finally ultimately shut them down and I say, Let, let's get right to it here. Leaders lead. That's what leaders do. They lead. There's an expression I love that says, see if I can probably do it from memory. It says, recognize that every out front maneuver you make is going to be lonely and a little bit frightening. If you're entirely comfortable, you're not far enough ahead to do any good. That warm sense of everything going well is nothing more than the body temperature at the center of the herd. Well, you can't lead from the center of the herd. You have to be out ahead of everybody else. And the only way to do that is to have a pretty good sense of where you're going. So we often, to me, the, the essence of leadership, I mean, the true essence of leadership, someone who exhibits it is someone who has the ability to paint a picture of a desirable future that's better than the one we have today, share it, and then enroll people to help them achieve it. They create a new status quo. They close the gap between where the customer is and where the customer wants to be. And that, to me, is what leadership is about. But you can't do that if you're not looking into the future, asking what if, thinking about alternate possibilities, and so on. And the truth is, most people don't do that. They, they're, they're either afraid or they don't know how. And that's where I, I think your mission is so powerful because the human-centric, human-driven part of this says, it's okay to be afraid. That's okay. That's okay. We're doing this together. Let's overcome the fear and let's move ourselves forward. We don't know where it's going. It's a big adventure, but we will get there. But if we just sit here we won't. I mean, you, you pointed out uh, you know, earlier on, Rob, that I, I do a lot of writing, and I do. I mean, I'm, that's fundamentally what I am. And one of my mentors, another writer who I just revere, said, you know, you can't write a book until you publish a first draft. And, you know, that's the scariest part is, you know, once I put pen to paper or finger to keyboard, as the case may be, I'm kind of committed. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in it now. But it's okay. Your goal is to put out a really bad first draft because until you do that, you've got nothing to work from, <laughs> right? So to me, life is a series of first drafts and leadership is about making those first drafts better and better and better as we go forward. You know, I'm kind of rambling here. I'll shut up now. But I mean, that's that, that to me is sort of the essence of what we're talking about. I love that. And I mean, obviously it speaks to your growth mindset, but I want to go back to the curiosity piece because it's kind of threaded through this whole conversation. How do we, like, where do we lose curiosity and how do we get people to flick those lights back on? That's a great question. So curiosity to me, <laughs> if you want to recover curiosity, the best thing you can do is go for a walk in the woods with a four-year-old, <laughs> you know? Why does it smell like that? Why does it look like that? Why does it live under the rock? How does it look when it's frozen? I mean, you know, you, you want to throttle them because, you know, most adults look at that and go, okay, I'm, I look like an idiot here because I can't answer a single question that's been asked of me in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> Just the way it is, okay? <laughs> but now as the, um, you know, as the partial owner of four grandchildren with soon to be five, I've kind of overcome that. <laughs> that, that problem. The, the, real, the real answer to your question, Rob, is, is this. Um, curiosity is a deliberate act, and it requires us to open our eyes and overcome the scotomas. And so I, I deliberately force myself to be curious. You know, I, I look around and try to see things that I otherwise wouldn't see. And what that really requires is maintaining a laser-like focus, but at the same time, putting on a wide-angle lens and being able to kind of, again, schizophrenically see both of those environments because they both matter, you know? The problem is if you focus on just one, then you miss the other. And so what I find is that 
curiosity is really the gateway into all the rabbit holes that I dive down that allow me to broaden my knowledge of the world. Um, I, I recently did some research because I was interested. I was chatting with an old friend of mine and he asked me, we were, we were kidding around and he, he said, I think we were talking about physics or some silly thing. And he said to me, okay, so what evidence do you have of a higher power in the universe? And I said, oh, that's easy, nutmeg. And he, <laughs> said, yeah. he said, what? Yeah. I said, have you ever smelled fresh? Have you ever scraped a fresh nutmeg and smelled it? If, you know, if that isn't evidence of a higher power, I don't know what is, okay? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And I walked away thinking about nutmeg. And I thought, wonder where that comes from. And so I looked into it and it turns out there's a point to this story. It turns out that there's a set of tiny islands in Indonesia that called the Banda Islands, where all the nutmeg in the world grows. And back in the, in the 17th and 16th centuries, the Dutch and the English went to war over nutmeg. And it was worth more than gold. It was incredibly valuable. And so they were, of course, sinking each other's ships and losing product and losing crews and ships and everything else. And finally, these two companies, uh, countries and companies, the Dutch East Indies Company and the British East Indies Company, came together and said, "This is just stupid. You know, we need to we we need to stop this. Let's make a deal." Well, it turned out that the English had at that time control over one tiny little island in that group of islands where the nutmeg was. And when I say tiny, it was two miles long or two and a half miles wide. It was this little tiny chunk of land had like four nutmeg trees on it. They agreed to give the Dutch control of that island in exchange for two things. One, the Dutch would give them the right to buy spices wholesale so that they could you know, afford them. And they agreed to exchange another piece of land for that little island in Indonesia. The Dutch felt great about it because it was a useless piece of land that they had no use for. And they exchanged it. And it's called Manhattan. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I always tell people, you know, the next time you think about the Big Apple, yeah, it wouldn't be there if it weren't for nutmeg. Okay, <laughs> right. So my point is that I have no idea where these rabbit holes are going to take me, but I have never once gone down one without learning something that is useful to me. And I believe that if more people, whether leaders or not, if more people recognize the power and the utility of knowledge for the sake of knowledge, we'd be in a much better place. And, and, and there's no hidden secret in there. There's no hidden meaning in what I just said. I simply mean that curiosity lights fires and they're the kind of fires that we want because what comes out of those fires is knowledge and, you know, knowledge leads to insight and insight leads to understanding. And I mean, is there anything more valuable than that? I don't think so. Not today, especially. I love it. We talk about what is leadership, eh, Rob, all the time on the show with our guests. And I think that's such a critical starting point because a lot of times it's a hard question to answer. But we like to answer it by saying, you know, leadership is really about maximizing growth, whether that's in your own potential or your people's potential, your business's potential, your community's potential. So leadership really is about growth. And if you're the one at the head of the pack trying to lead people in a direction of growth and realizing more of their potential, I don't even know what that looks like if you're not curious. Yeah. And, you know, I often say that leaders really, regardless of industry, regardless of company, regardless of the size of the organization they lead, they get paid to do one thing and only one thing. And that is change the business. doesn't matter what the change is. They get paid to grow the business, shrink the business, diversify it, consolidate it, change their capex posture, whatever. I mean, that, that's what they get paid to do, reduce risk. And you can't do that if you're not curious, because the essence of being curious is that question we all referred to a few minutes ago, what if? Well, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we went this way? What if we went that way? And, and I think the, the beauty of that, and it really is the beauty of it, is that if you ask that question, then what you're doing is you're painting a picture of what could be, not what is. 
And if you allow that to guide you, if you allow a vision to guide you instead of the status quo, you know, it may change along the way and it probably will, but at least you're moving. At least you're evolving, you're changing, you're growing. And, you know, to get back to what you just said, to me, that's what leaders do. And, you know, one of the problems we often see in businesses is that they all know they have to change. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, that's Darwin at its best, right? The problem is they, they sort of look at themselves and say, we are here. We need to be there. Let's go. And they head down the road. And the very first thing they run into with a loud clap is, well, now that's really nice, but you see, that's not how we do things here. And everything comes to a screeching halt. The status quo takes over and nothing changes. As opposed to a very different strategy, which says, instead of starting here in the present, let's start in the future. Let's go out there and paint a picture. Now, it's got to be realistic. You know, you can't, if you're in the, you know, the bus business, you can't say, well, we're teleporting people next year. No, you probably aren't. It's got to be realistic. But if you can build that realistic view, then what ends up happening is you get people to see the view as their new reality. And then what happens is they start saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, now, now what if we also did this? And what if this were to happen? And what would happen if as a result of that, we could do this? And suddenly what happens is instead of pushing hard to try to reach this new state of being, they're running to keep up with it because it's it's their new reality. I've actually had executives using doing this, this workshop that I do on this very topic. I call it reverse engineering the future. And what I've had them do is they've actually come to me and they've said, look, this is a drawing of what my office looks like in 10 years. And they've, and they've got a desk and their picture of their dog and their picture of their family and their computer, you know, and it's, it's heartwarming because what has happened is that they've allowed that future they desire to guide them forward instead of being mired in what holds them back. They're catalyzed by what's pushing them forward. And again, it doesn't get any better than that. And it, it isn't that, you know, it's not rocket science. It isn't that difficult to do if you allow yourself to evolve that way. You know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> we were literally, we literally do the same thing. And we were literally coaching our leaders. Was it, I think they're working on it this week yeah. to start doing their future legacy aspect and start to visualize what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Now, kind of along those lines, Steve, like what, like, where are you headed? Qualify that for me a little bit. What's your vision for yourself in the future? That's a great question. So I spend a lot of my time in, well, traditionally, not now, obviously, but traditionally, I sort of live on airplanes. You know, I've, I've, there was a period there eh, roughly a decade ago, a little after that, perhaps when I was averaging anywhere from 40 to 60 countries a year in this job, you know, yeah, a lot of my work is in the developing world. So I spend a lot of time in Africa and Southeast Asia, Latin America. Um, and I love it. I really do. Um, what I don't love is the airplanes. And now that I've been home for a while, kind of like this, <laughs> you know, this idea of getting up, for example, last week, I, I got up and I read the news and it said massive snowstorm to hit Vermont. Now, under normal circumstances, I'd be pulling my hair out thinking, I got to make alternate flight arrangements. I got to fly out tomorrow. I'm not going to be able to. Can I drive to Albany and maybe pin? don't want to drive because of the wet, you know, and now I look at it and go, huh, oh, well, <laughs> Snow doesn't affect Zoom. I guess I can just teach on Zoom. To, you know, it's it's wonderful. So, so the real answer to your question is less travel, which I love the idea of. Uh, continuing to stay engaged, more writing. Uh, I've got a lot of books underway. I've I've got many books behind me, and a lot more to come. Um, doing a lot of audio work, a lot of uh, a lot of nature recording, a lot of photography. Uh, and a lot of time with my grandkids and family. So, you know, it's it, not, not big changes, just, just more of a few things, less of others. Uh, you know, <laughs> this leadership thing, it, it sort of suffuses everything you do when you get your head into it. And so I don't think it's something you extricate yourself from. I think it's 
part of who you are and, and you just continue to share it going forward. I, you know, that's, to me, that's, that's where the real magic lies. Steve, I'm wondering if you could help our leaders out there who are feeling themselves changing in their state, possibly experiencing a little bit of this curiosity that we're riffing on here. And if they are coming to this, not having maybe approached the why with their team before, or maybe they're listening to this and they've been, their autopilot's been extremely disrupted by everything that's been going on in the world over the last two years. What would be your advice or maybe some steps that you could give them in terms of where to begin doing that type of work with their team? I, uh, I'd be happy to. And I think it, it ties in very much to your mission as an organization. I really, I really believe that. I have this annoying habit of collecting aphorisms. Uh, in fact, I, I recently wrote a very tongue-in-cheek paper, which I'll share with both of you, called, and I've got it right here, a predictive tool for measuring employee satisfaction. And it it riffs a little bit on Tom Peters, who's one of my heroes in the world of, of leadership, uh, who many years ago, back in the, the early 80s, published a book called In Search of Excellence. And in that book, he talked about something that he called management by walking around. And basically, it says just get off your butt and get out there and talk to people. Go talk to your employees. Go talk to them. Find out what's going on. What are they working on? What's, you know, what are they happy about? What's creating challenges for them and so on? Well, I just, I morphed that a little bit and I call it management by walking around laughing. And, and what I mean by that is that I, I believe that you can assess the relative health of the workplace by simply walking around and looking at the cubicle humor that appears on people's cubicle walls. Now, you can't do that right now because we're not in cubicles, but traditionally you could, or look at jokes that people share on Zoom, whatever it may be. It's a really good indicator of things. Anyway, one of the one of the aphorism, aphorisms that I picked up from that exercise is one of my favorites. It, it says, the best way to become a leader is to find a parade and get in front of it. And in response to your question, which is a very good one, I think people need to pay a little bit more attention as leaders to the big, high-level, hairy, critical trends that are shaping their and their customer industries. And, and I'm not talking necessarily about technology trends, although that's part of it. I'm talking about trends like what we're seeing as a result of the pandemic. You know, there's an awful lot of talk, for example, about virtual work, but I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I think it's not work that's been virtualized. It's the workplace. We're still doing the same job we ever did. We're just doing it in a different location. So uh, my concern with things like that is if you don't stop and think about that and look at the trends and really understand what's going on, you can be led in a very bad direction. And, and, I, and I don't want people to fall into that trap. So, so my first and, and I believe most important recommendation is ask yourself, what are the trends? What are the technology, people, geopolitical, supply chain, whatever trends that either are or will affect my industry and my customer's industry? That's number one. Number two, I believe, is to ask yourself this question. As a leader, what am I doing to ensure that my company is being thought about as much by the customer as we're thinking about the customer. You know, companies, especially in the sales world, people sit around and fret about, oh, I hope my customer remembers me. I hope they know I'm still out here. Well, what are you doing to make sure that that's the case, <laughs> right? What actions are you taking to stay top of mind with that customer? And that means serving them. That means giving with no expectation of anything in return. That means sharing thought leadership documents with them. It means checking in on them just to see how you're doing with absolutely no intent to sell. Just to say, I'm just, you know, you were in my head today and I just thought I'd make sure that you and yours are doing okay. Everything okay. Anything I can do. Now, those are the kind of questions people have to ask. And so really, I, I think this sort of long-winded response to your question is that if we allow our human side to come out a little bit more and remember that, yes, that's a customer, you know, yes, that's a client, 
you know, whatever relationship you have with that person, they're also a person. And companies are made up of people. And, you know, the 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 root, this is where I justify my undergraduate education, the, the root of the word corporation lies in the body. I mean, it's, it's the corpus. I mean, it's it's a group of people working together towards some common end. So, do we remember that that's the case? I mean, how often do people have a Zoom call with customers just to talk about sports or food or family or, you know, whatever? Um, I think that part gets overlooked a lot. And I can tell you without any qualification at all that the relatively few executives I know who practice that, who make it part of who they are, they're the ones that come out on top. There's a, there's a technology concept called the signal to noise ratio. Very important in audio. We all know that if, if the noise is louder than or as loud as the signal, you won't hear the signal. And so what are you doing to rise above the noise floor? What are you doing to be the signal among all that competitive noise that everybody is hearing? And it's not my product is better because sadly, truthfully, it probably isn't. I mean, I'm sure you make good products, but so does everybody else. What else have you got? Right. And so the key here is that it's not that you're louder than everybody else. It's that you're broadcasting on a different wavelength. You're saying something different than everybody else, right? I mean, the Me Too strategy, I mean, it works, but what it does is it sets you up on a long, slow race to the bottom. And the winner is the one that has the cheapest price. And that's not a winner. The only winner there is the person buying. And they just sit and wait for you to duke it out until you're over. And then they go, okay, I'll take that one. <laughs> that's no way to do business. It's not a long-term relationship. It doesn't build anything of value. It doesn't create any promise for the future. And so I think if, if leaders were to kind of, you know, think about this sort of stuff a little bit more, really think about what it means to lead, um, I think they'd be in pretty good shape. I, I'll leave you here on this question with one final quote, a, a great book I read back in at the turn of the 21st century called Blown to Bits. One of the chapters starts with this line, and it hit me like a nail in the forehead. It said, a far greater vulnerability than legacy assets is a legacy mindset. And wow, that was so powerful to me because it it kind of captured in one sentence what I see so many companies doing without realizing it, which is we've got great technology. Yeah, but does it still apply to the world at large? Does it still lend itself to what we have today? Have you given any thought to that? And so I think that's the key is that, you know, ask again, ask these questions, ask if what you're doing is what your customers actually want. I mean, it's, I'm glad you're good at it. But is that really what they need? Can you retool? Should you retool? Are you talking? Are you asking the questions? Those are the sorts of things that I think get overlooked, you know, all too often, sadly. You, you were just giving me PTSD from all the Dilbert and uh, office space memes that were around every office I worked in. <laughs> Well, it's true. You know, one of the one of the things you'll see it in the paper. Uh, there's a a great quote that is indicative of how people are feeling about leadership. It says, "Where are they? Which way did they go? I have to find them. I'm their leader." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Ask where do you, what do you say to the leader who's listening to this and who's saying to themselves, yeah, but I'm so stressed in all this disruption. I'm just so overwhelmed in all this disruption. How do you get somebody over that type of hump in their mindset, right? If they kind of feel like they have a sense that they need to make changes, but they're just at the wits end of their bandwidth right now. Well, there, it's a two-stage process, and you're going to think I've lost what little mind I have left here. Uh, the first thing I would tell them to do is to go practice some forest bathing. There is a there is a practice in Japan that is actually mandated by many workplaces where workers are required to get out of the office every day and go for a walk in the woods. And it's because the they believe it's because the various essential oils that that volatilize out of the leaves and whatever of these trees in the forest make you feel better. They make you feel good. So my first 
my first recommendation is get out of your office and go for a walk in the woods. And I, you know, I, that's a little bit apocryphal. What I simply mean is distance yourself from it to gain perspective. I, every day, I start my day every day with a walk in the woods. I happen to have a forest at the bottom of my street here. And so I, that's where I go every morning. And it just gives me a chance to just think, ask questions, listen to podcasts, listen to the birds, whatever it may be. That's number one. And number two is I believe that as they do that, they need to ask themselves, what is my aspirational gap? And this is a really difficult question because to admit that there's a gap is to admit that there's a gap. In other words, to admit it is to say, I'm not where I want to be. But of course, the correct response to that is, well, who is? Yeah, right. Right. I mean, the minute you decide you're, you've arrived, that's the day you start dying. I mean, I, I don't know. I think there's always more to, more to life. Go get out there and find it. So, so really, I think it's, it's a question of personal honesty, of introspective honesty, where I want people to go, okay, what's going really well? I mean, legitimately, what's going well? What am I doing well? What skills do I have that are working? What results am I getting that make me proud? Now, what's the opposite of that? Where do I want to be? And what does that look like? And I find that with leaders, the single hardest thing that they have to do is to let go of what is and think about what could be. And part of the reason for that is that there is a sense that as a leader, you must be in control. And to let go of what is, is to, in many ways, give up control. But there's something more powerful than control, and that's influence. And so if you let go of the control aspect just a little bit and just imagine yourself in a better place. And I'm not, I'm not trying to get all California, you know, foo-foo here. I'm, I'm simply saying that can you imagine getting up a year from now and saying, there is no better job on earth than this? I, I mean, everything is going so well. Great. What does it look like? Show me details. Talk to me, explain it to me, be realistic. But what's so much better about it? What's going on? Right? What are your customers doing? You just got to the end of the best week you've ever had at work and you're flipping off the light in the office, getting ready to go home. It was a great week. What made it so great? If people were to actually ask themselves those questions as leaders, they would, and then and be willing to listen to what sort of the answers are, they would be able to start formulating a path toward a vision that they'd be more happy with. And so that's kind of my recommendation more than anything else. But, but I, again, I want to warn people, it's really hard to do. We don't want to give up the certainty of the status quo, but, you know, Darwin, one of the great quotes about Darwin, everybody remembers him as saying survival of the fittest. What's really interesting about that. This is the Marine biologist in me coming out. He never said that ever. He never wrote it. He never said it. What he said was that those that survive, now he was talking about species, but it works just as well for companies and individuals. Those that survive are not the strongest or the smartest, but those that are most adaptable to change. And if leaders could accept that, embrace that, and then act on it, they'd be in a far better place. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but that, that's that's my that's my direction. You're just getting me more and more curious. Oh, <laughs> I'm curious if when I actually, you know, to some extent have feedback on this answer because I work with leaders and I've worked with leaders so intensely through this disruption. I'm just curious if maybe they're really stressed and overwhelmed because they're battling to try to hang on to the status quo, right? And the status quo is no longer working, but they're trying so hard to keep it working. Yeah. Just yeah. imagine how much would be alleviated if they were to let go of that and open up space for all this what if work <laughs> and the possibility thinking and right. And Absolutely. Just- and, and, you know, the other thing that's kind of important, and, and this is sort of where your leadership launchpad project plays a, a really interesting role is that, Oftentimes, what can push someone over that edge to action is just having peers or people that understand that they can talk to about it. Leadership, this is going to sound really smarmy, but it's it's true. Leadership is, by definition, kind of lonely. 
you know, you know, everything goes to the top and somebody's got to make a decision. And if it's the wrong decision, you know, you know there's, there's an old expression that says, <clears throat> pardon me, it says good decisions come from experience and experience comes from a lot of bad decisions. Well, it's, yeah. it's true. And, and so oftentimes just having a friendly ear that people can talk to, to say, well, what if I did this? What if it went bad? What would I do? Oftentimes it's just a matter of validation. You know, it's a matter of encouragement. It's a matter of, of letting them know it's not the end of the earth. This is not Armageddon. You know, it's, it's, if you go one direction and it turns out to be a dead end, pick another direction. It's not that hard. Somebody has to do it. And if you don't, then you get mired in status quo. And the problem with status quo is that it is a death sentence for leadership and organizations if it goes on too long, right? It, it's, it, it's just the way it is. That's what the term means. Well, with everything changing around you, you can sit still for a while, but sooner or later, you're going to get trampled by the herd. Is that really where you want to be? I don't think so. I love this. And it takes a level of vulnerability with ourselves to sit with these questions. And often what Susan's referring to is the fight or flight and the ego is triggered and it doesn't allow you access to that. But nature and another thing I believe is what you also mentioned about creating moments of connection both with your customers and your employees will help you extremely lower the barrier and bring yourself from up here down a little bit where you can access the answers to those. Now, Steve, the last question we got, we love this question. What do you want your legacy to be? That I made people think. That I made people be a little bit more curious. That I made people be a little bit deliberate, more deliberate in their own lives, that they became a little bit more aware. This is sort of the EQ part of the whole IQ, EQ thing. They became a little bit more aware of their professional and personal surroundings. And as a consequence of all of that, that they walked away at the end of the day and said, you know, I made a difference today. I made a difference. I didn't merely reduce the number of, in, of emails in my inbox. I didn't, you know, process the number of widgets that I'm paid to process. Somebody went home today because of my actions feeling better about themselves or the company is in a better place. It, it, those to me, those are the incalculable outcomes of good leadership. And if I can inspire that in people, I've, I've done what my career was supposed to do. Uh, again, I, I can't. I can't imagine anything loftier than that. You just make a little bit of a difference. I often tell people that what I really want to do is I want to take their perspective. And I know we're in audio here, but but I want to take your perspective where you're looking at an item and you simply move your head maybe an inch to the side and see it from a slightly different point of view. If I can cause that little tiny change, then I've done my job. That's that's leadership. That's what if. And, we're, and I'm trying to inspire Susan to delete some of her 50,000 emails that she has. <laughs> I feel um, so exposed. <laughs> some people collect rock stamps. It's okay. <laughs> oh, boy. Steve, we love this this conversation. And I, to be honest, I wish we had another hour book because we could have yeah. kept going. Um but uh, for people who are listening, where can they find you? Well, there are a variety of places. The easiest is probably the website, which is just uh, shepherdcom.com. That's S-H-E-P-A-R-D-C-O-M-M.com. And from there, you can vector off to pretty much everything else that I do out there. My various elements of schizophrenic work. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll drop Steve's website in the podcast notes so you can have that there for us obviously hit subscribe to the Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform 
Share it with all the leaders in your life and for all things leadership, programs, burnout, DEI, uh, one-on-one coaching, speaking, head over to EliteHighPerformance.com and you can find it all there for us. Susan, is there anything you want to leave us with today? Yeah. Organizing my emails just does not lead to enough curiosity for me, as it turns out. But this conversation sure did nothing but translisten to you. You know, it's so interesting as a linguist yourself and neurolinguistic programming, my specialty, we we really talk a lot about the childlike state is the most resourceful state of them all. So you certainly helped us make that case for our leaders. Curiosity is a need, it's not a want. Are you really a leader if you're not deliberately curious? I don't know after this show. (laughs) Thank you so much for riffing on the curiosity bomb with us because, you know, that's, again, something that I'm always trying to get, you know, adults to think about beyond childhood because it is, it's so, it's such a powerful resource for growth and expansion and impact. I enjoyed this very much. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, let's definitely stay in touch and see what comes next. Love it. Chapter Absolutely. Two. Yeah, yeah. And I love it too. And where I want to go is where Steve talked a lot about vision. And I have a great quote here from Rick Joyner. And he says, spiritual vision requires that we see with the eyes of our hearts. It will be more real to us than what we see with our natural eyes. We must see what is invisible to others. And once we see what's invisible, we can create that path for them to come with us. Steve, this was an incredible interview. I loved every moment. I'm looking forward to having you back on the show. As am I. And everybody listening, we thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone.